The Girl in the Barrel On September 2, 1999, in the suburban town of Jericho, New York, just 30 miles from midtown Manhattan, Ronald Cohen was preparing to sell his house. He had just found a buyer for the property at $455,000, and the new owner wanted to take a final walkthrough before taking ownership. The buyer was very thorough, and during the walkthrough wanted to see the crawl space beneath an addition that had been built onto the back of the house about 30 years before. The crawl space was only 36 inches high, so the two men had to hunch down to get through the large space. At the very back of the crawl space, they noticed a 55-gallon barrel on its side wedged beneath the stairs. The buyer asked Mr. Cohen about the barrel, and he said it had been there since he bought the property over 10 years before. He had no idea what was in it or how it got there. It was far too heavy to move by himself, so he had just left it there since he never used the crawl space anyway. The buyer said he wanted it removed before he would purchase the property. Mr. Cohen and his real estate agent got some help and rolled the barrel out from underneath the home and took it to the curb for the trash workers to haul away. When sanitation workers showed up the next day, they informed Mr. Cohen that at 355 pounds, the barrel was far too heavy for them to take away, and since they had no idea what it contained, it would need to be emptied to make sure there was nothing hazardous or toxic inside. Mr. Cohen and his real estate agent decided to open the barrel and separate whatever was inside so it could be disposed of properly. There was a metal seal around the top of the barrel, so with some tools, they pried the barrel open. The two men were immediately hit with an overwhelming stench, the unmistakable stench of death. Once the lid was removed, they could see a curled human hand and a woman's shoe. The barrel was filled with a green, viscous fluid surrounded by tiny plastic pellets. Mr. Cohen immediately called police. Police took the barrel to the forensics lab where they emptied it onto a large white tarp so they could collect any evidence. Inside the barrel, they found a small mummified female body. The body had been crumpled over and bent in half to fit into the barrel. Because the barrel was sealed so tightly, her body had been fairly well preserved, with skin the consistency of rubber. But when it hit the air, it began decaying quickly and was immediately taken away for autopsy. During the autopsy, they determined that the body was that of a female of Hispanic descent. She was tiny, only about 4 foot 9 inches tall, with long black hair and some unusual gold bridge work on her teeth. The bridgework was not something commonly done in the United States at the time and had most likely been done in South America somewhere. The cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head. Someone had used a hammer of some sort to smash her head seven to ten times, crushing her skull. She was also eight to nine months pregnant. Police collected DNA from the fetus to see if they could later match it to a father. When police emptied the rest of the barrel, it oozed out a strange green gooey liquid, possibly a chemical dye of some sort. They also noticed tiny black and white plastic pellets mixed in the goo. The woman's clothes were still intact and seemed to be a style from the 60s. Near the bottom of the barrel, they found a woman's purse with some cosmetic items inside and a badly damaged address book. There was also a green stem from a plastic flower arrangement. 
At the bottom of the barrel, there were three pieces of jewelry, two gold rings, one of them with an inscription reading M-H-R-X-I-I-59, and a locket that was engraved to Patrice Love Uncle Phil. The pages of the address book were badly damaged and stuck together with the green goo. Detectives weren't hopeful of getting any clues from it, but just in case, it was put inside a forensic drying cabinet for a few days to dry out. The following day, detectives began researching to find out where the barrel may have come from. The homeowner, Mr. Cohen, explained that it was already there when he bought the house several years earlier. Detectives began going back through the prior owners to find out who built the extension on the house. After researching four prior owners, they eventually found the homeowner who built the extension on the home. He was now 71 years old and lived in Boca Raton, Florida. His name was Howard Elkins. He sold the house back in 1972 and retired when he closed his plastics business that he owned in Manhattan. Police wanted to question him, but they wanted to collect more information before making the trip south. As the days went by, the clues started to pour in. On the side of the barrel were printed the letters GAF, which turned out to be a chemical company based in New Jersey. Police took photos of the barrel and brought some of the pellets and a sample of the green dye to them for analysis. GAF confirmed that the pellets were polyethylene pellets that were used to make many plastic products. One of these products was plastic flowers. The green dye was a unique product called halogen green which was a dye specifically used to make plastic flower bases in the 1960s. The only customer they had for that product was a company called Melrose Plastics. It was the same company that Howard Elkins had closed in 1972. Meanwhile, the Forensics Documents Lab made some progress on the damaged address book. They were able to get it dried enough to where they could get the pages separated, but the ink had completely disintegrated from the pages. Using a device called a video spectral comparator, they were able to read some of the information on the documents by using alternative light sources. The first notation in the book was a number that started with the letter A. It was a resident alien number. Detectives spoke with immigration officers, but the number was from 30 years ago and their systems had changed since then. It would take time for them to come back with a result. Knowing that the barrel, the plastic, and the dye all came from Howard Elkins' business and they'd found the barrel beneath Elkins' former home, detectives now believe they had enough information to take a trip to Florida and question him. But before questioning him, they wanted to visit his former business partner in the plastic flower business, Melvin Gantman, who had also since retired to Boca Raton. We'll be back to True Crime Sleep Stories right after this message. What if you could share your story with the world? What if you could inspire others with your passion, your message, or your vision? What if you had a team to help you craft the perfect story for your business or brand? Well, you can. And we at With AIM are here to make it happen. With AIM is more than just a podcast production company. We are your storytellers your voice, and your partner in creating a podcast that will captivate your audience, showcase your brand's personality, and build a lasting relationship with your customers. So don't let your story go untold. Start your podcast today. Visit with aim.co slash podcast to learn more. That's with aim.co forward slash podcast. With AIM, 
Be the voice of your brand. Mr. Gantman confirmed that he and Mr. Elkins were business partners, but he hadn't spoken to him in years. When shown a photo of the barrel, Gantman quickly confirmed that the barrel was one that they often used for their company. He also verified the dye color and plastic pellets were what they used for making their plastic flowers. When shown a photo of the plastic stem found in the barrel, he knew that it was from their company as well. The most useful information Gantman gave, however, was something he recalled from back in the late 60s. He knew that Elkins was having an affair with a Hispanic employee at the company and had rented an apartment for her. He didn't know her name, but he remembered that she had strange gold teeth in the front and long black hair. Gantman recalled getting a phone call from the landlord of the apartment Elkins was renting for her. The landlord was looking for Elkins. The apartment was now empty, but the belongings were still in the apartment and the landlord wanted him to get the things moved out so it could be rented again. Detectives were now more convinced than ever that 71-year-old Elkins was the killer. They went to his home and Elkins invited them in. All the things that Gantman easily remembered from the business, Elkins didn't seem to recall at all. He had no recollection of the barrel, the dye, the plastic pellets, nothing. Surprisingly, when asked if he had had an affair during that time, he freely admitted that he had. All he could say was, yes, a very short affair, she left. When asked if he knew she was pregnant, or if he even knew her name, he seemed not to remember anything about her. Detectives informed him that the girl was found pregnant and deceased in a barrel beneath his former house. He seemed completely unfazed. When they asked him for a sample of his DNA, he flatly refused. Just then his phone rang. It was his wife. After speaking briefly with his wife, Elkins told the detectives that they needed to leave. He said his wife was coming home and that the two of them would have a lot to talk about. The New York detectives had no jurisdiction in Florida to get a warrant or make an arrest. Before they left, they informed Elkins that they would be back with a warrant and put him in jail for the rest of his life. Early the following morning, the two detectives received a call from the local Palm Beach Police Department. Elkins was nowhere to be found and his wife had put in a missing persons report. Friends, family, and the police were all searching for Howard Elkins. He was found later that evening in his neighbor's garage in the backseat of their Ford Explorer SUV. That morning, he had gone to Walmart and purchased a 12-gauge Mossberg shotgun. Elkins sat in the backseat of the SUV, put the shotgun between his legs and the barrel in his mouth, and shot himself in the head. Not that there was any question of his guilt, but detectives now collected his DNA from the scene and took it back to New York, where it was confirmed that he was the father of the fetus. As soon as they returned to New York, eight days after the barrel was found, they got word back from immigration with the identity of the victim. Her name was Rania Angelica Moroccan, and she had immigrated to the U.S. in 1966 from El Salvador. The forensic document team was also able to get much more information from the address book. They recovered several names, addresses, and phone numbers. The phone numbers were over 30 years old, so detectives didn't have much hope for them, but they tried calling anyway. Amazingly, one phone number still worked. The woman that answered, Kathy Andrade, was a close friend of Reina and was still living at the same location three decades later. 
Kathy identified Reina from a 30-year-old immigration photo. She said Reina immigrated from El Salvador and worked making plastic flowers at Melrose Plastics in the 60s. In November 1968, Reina had told Kathy that she had been dating her boss at the flower factory and was pregnant with his baby. Kathy didn't know his name, only that it was Reina's boss at the flower factory. One day, Reina told her that she had made a terrible mistake. She said she'd gotten mad at him and called his wife. Reina told his wife that her husband was having an affair with her, had promised to marry her, and that she was pregnant with his baby. Reina told Kathy she was terrified that he would kill her. It turns out her assumption was right. That was the last time Kathy ever heard from Reina. Kathy recalled going to Reina's apartment one evening and there were two plates set out for dinner. Dinner was still warm on the stove, but there was no sign of Reina. She called police at the time to report her missing, but was told that if she wasn't a family member, she couldn't file a missing persons report. She tried to call Rainia every day for weeks after that, but never heard from her and eventually gave up. Oscar Corral, a journalist covering the story for Newsday, a daily newspaper in the New York City area, later tracked down Rainia's 95-year-old mother in San Salvador, El Salvador, and flew down to visit her. Her mother said she would speak to Rainia regularly on the phone, then suddenly the contact stopped and she had no idea why. She said she would often dream of Rainia trapped inside a barrel. Rainia's body was transported back to El Salvador to be buried. Her mother died one month later and was buried next to her. Thanks for listening to True Crime Sleep Stories. If you aren't asleep yet, consider following the show. Maybe our next story will give you the peace of mind you desperately need. Or not.